Folks, come on back into your seats. If you're a youth and you're going, get on out of here. Yeah. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for fellowship and for the joy of being together. But Lord, we need, we need our being together to be elevated from uh, what it might mean for us just to kind of have a party or hang out around the fire pit to eternal hanging out and being together, life together, your life. And so we ask that you would, uh, that you would infuse our fellowship with your very presence, Lord. It's the basis of the message I'm about to preach. And we need you. We need you in everything we do. And so we thank you, Father, for the ways in which you inform and you supply our fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, before I even get going, I need to just acknowledge uh, something that needs to be acknowledged, and that's that, um, well, right now, three-fourths of the Butterstein clan are here. I don't know what happened to Becca, um, uh, but um, the, <laughs> no, they, they, have, they have been here since uh, the very, well, the, the second place we met. The first place we met was a field out in, in, in Oakley for an Easter service, but then we, we, we started in Youngerman, uh, Youngerman Circle, you know, in 2004, and they were there. You know, shortly after we started, I'll never forget. I remember the day Becca walked in, uh, the middle of the, it was the middle of the week. It wasn't a Sunday morning, and she basically interviewed our staff to find out who we were, figure out if it was a safe enough place to bring her children. We told her it was not, <laughs> and she came anyway, and uh, with her family, and they have uh, they have been part of our church since then. Since you know, so it's fifteen years of. Of walking with us, and I don't think that that's done. But I want, you, but I do want to tell you that they are they are planning to move now. It's heading their their ship is headed towards Atlanta, uh, and there's I I don't want to. I mean, I I could just get sidetracked here in a way that would probably make me an emotional mess, and so I'm not going to do that. Um, but I want to tell you that. Um, well, first up, I love you guys, and I believe that the Lord has a plan on each. You know, I, I mean. The Lord speaks to Israel in, in the book of Jeremiah about plans and purposes, and we get grafted into that in a way that is corporate, but it's also individual, and I do believe that he has something significant that lies ahead for each and every one of you, and I know that you're going in, in different directions, uh, even though you're a family that's united, and I'm, I'm thrilled for that. And what we're going to do to end our services, if it's okay with you guys, is I want to end our service by praying for you guys and sending you out, even though you're... I don't. I think three fourths of, of you are are, are heading. Uh, Braxton's going to be here a while until she heads over to the Middle East, and so. And by the way, if you haven't met with Braxton yet about helping her do that, you need to meet with Braxton to help her do that uh, to get there. And so, uh, this is a commercial for the end of the service to say, if you're able, please stay and let's surround the Buttersteins and pray. Okay. Everybody got that? Amen. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 in the end to a very familiar passage of Scripture that you all will know if, you're, if you've been in church for any length of time. I'm not looking to win awards for obscurity uh, with this message. And uh, I'm going to preach a message that probably in its 
outline form might be something that many of you have actually heard before. I mean, it may, it may come as a wow moment to, to some of you, but many of you will have, un, have heard this or been taught this or even, even possibly come across this yourself uh, in this passage because of its familiarity. But also, sometimes familiarity uh, can, can make us lazy, right? It can, we can become so familiar or, or that we take things for granted or that we, we just kind of, you know, it's passe. And, and so I want to delve into this um, together. Let me read it. And then if you can follow on the screen if you'd like. And then after that, I'll pray and, and give you a little review. So here we are in Matthew chapter 28, the very end of uh, in Matthew's report, the very end of Jesus' earthly uh, ministry. He's getting ready to ascend you know, into heaven. And this is what he says to 11 disciples. Maybe there's some others that are gathered. It's not clear, but definitely the 11 are there. And he has them gathered together. And he says to them these words from Matthew chapter 28. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go to Atlanta or to Jacksonville or to your community or to Bangladesh or to uh, your husband or to, you know, uh, your children or to wherever and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, Father, we ask that you would pour yourself out in this simple word, that you would give us uh, meat. Sometimes I think we, we get the feeling that when we when we review or when we encounter familiar passages that it's like eating a uh, marshmallow peanut butter sandwich. Kind of easy to go down, tastes good, but not nearly as filling as something that's, that's a well-rounded meal. And so we ask Jesus that you would, that you would show us uh, how deep and how instructive and how, how important this familiar passage is. And pray, Lord, that you would pour yourself out in not just my, my teaching, but, Father, in, uh, in the way in which our hearts are prepared to receive, that you would go before this message. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, something that would force us beyond the, the, the surface into the depths of what it means to, to be one who follows you. And so, Lord, as I always pray, I pray you, if you're going to do that, you'd start that with me. You make me ready, and then use me in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, last week I preached a message that was based in uh, the book of Mark, but it was, I just titled it Discipleship Is, and then went through four aspects of discipleship uh, that I'll review for you, just in case you weren't here and you want to kind of catch up. What I basically went through was the idea that to understand what it means to follow Jesus, to really be a Christian, to really be a, I mean, to, be a, to say we're a Christian or to say we're a disciple is the same thing. And there, there is a sense in which in the church, particularly in the West, we can unhitch that. So we have this kind of cultural Christianity sort of allowance that says, hey, are you a Christian? And you go, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, I'm not Jewish, I'm not a Muslim, and I'm not an atheist. So, uh, I mean, uh, my, my, my grandma and grandpa went to church all the time, and my parents did, so I'm, I'm a Christian. And 
the Bible does not afford a separate category of cultural Christianity. It equates discipleship or following Jesus with what it means to be a Christian. And so last week we went through some of the basics of this, and I said discipleship is essential or necessary. It is a necessary component. It's not an optional part. Jesus actually introduces the concept of discipleship through the lens of repentance. He says, repent and believe. Kingdom of God is near. Time to join. Turn from your way. Follow my way. Get on board. It's not just essential and necessary. It's responsive. Jesus doesn't just call us to repent. He calls us to follow, right? And so he, he, when we're called by Jesus, we're called to him. We're called to, I mean, just think about that for a second. We're, we, we, Jesus doesn't say, hey, um, uh, go figure some things out. He says, he says, come to me. Follow me. And then I will do the making part. And so we're called to Jesus and we're called to serve. I mean, that's the, 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 the responsive part of it. It's not just essential and responsive. It's costly. Uh, what I got into last week was the idea that even though in our culture today the highest form of existence is self-expression, Jesus makes clear that the highest form of following is not self-expression but self-denial. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Taking up your cross was not a metaphorical thing that says, hey, just grin and bear tough times. He, when he said it to them, they could literally look to places where people were crucified and know that he was saying that literally when you follow me, this is going to be hard. It's not good PR. He was not a good marketing guy, but he was very honest and very clear about what it meant. And then finally, it's corporate. In other words, no lone rangers. You know, Jesus isn't calling us some sort of like isolated, you know, I'm going to figure it out on my own apart from the body of Christ, and I have special Gnostic revelation, like Gnosticism means like special knowledge that, you, you know, the church might have something, but I'm going to go out on my own on an island and figure it all out on my own. It doesn't work that way. You can only grow so holy on your own. We, the, the Christianity requires a corporate following, and so that's where we were last week. This week, uh, is the fifth part of the discipleship is. It's not just essential, responsive, costly, and corporate, but it's, it's discipleship is missional, or it's our mission. You might say it's multiplying. You, can, you could use a, a lot of different words to describe what I'm trying to get at through this passage. Now, if you look at this passage in total, uh, uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, if it's possible, Andy, to just throw the whole thing up there, you can just throw it up there and leave it up there, 18 to 20. I'm not sure if you can make that happen, but if you can, you can just leave it up there the whole time. And if it fits, uh, he'll make it work if he can. But if you look at this passage, as much as the verbs are instructive, like the, you could, I could preach a message, I could preach a series of messages just on the verbs, particularly when Jesus says, go, make, teach. You know, just what he tells us to do in here. What, you know, the verbs are always instructive. And, 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 and you can always, if you want to do a good job of what we call exegesis, it's always helpful to look to the action and say, what is the action that's going on in this verse? And Jesus is commanding or mandating in three ways, you know, three actions. We're supposed to go, which is the opposite of, yeah, we're, we're supposed to make, which is the opposite of, yeah, and we're supposed to teach, which is the opposite of, I don't know, yeah, maybe ignore or not, you know, it's, and so there, there, is, there is a three-part, you know, action-based mandate that Jesus says is part of our following, and so discipleship is, in, in large part, obedience to these, these three actions, but 
what I want to do is I want to get at it in a different way. I want to I get at it through looking at the four alls that are in this passage because I think the four alls that are here are so beautifully instructive of, of what it means for us to be hitched, you know, really hitched to Jesus. Um, this is a powerful, powerful, insightful passage. Jesus, uh, he brings, he, he's culminating his ministry uh, in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is all about his kingship. He's king, you know, he, he, he starts out by pronouncing his, his kingships pronounced through his genealogy. Jesus throughout talks about you know, rising to that. He's, he's, he's confessed as that in Matthew 16. He's crucified as the king of the Jews. And here he is at the very end of his, his uh, ministry on earth now, leaving and ascending into the throne by, by pronouncing something that's very kingly. And so Jesus, uh, first of all, I'll, just, I'll get the first one. You can see it up there in, in verse 18 at the top. It says, Jesus, Jesus says, I have been given all authority. Do you see that? All authority. And so that's the first all. Jesus, here he is, Jesus, making another one of those humble, meek, and mild Jesus statements. Right? I mean, this is, I mean, we go, man, I love Jesus because his teaching is so tender and safe. And if if you, if you, if you've heard that, you're, it's, it's typically you're hearing that or you're buying into that in the same way that, you know, the good book says he'll never give you more than you can handle. It's that kind of understanding. If you read the red-letter words of Jesus, it's oftentimes, it's extraordinarily compassionate but also extraordinarily challenging. And Jesus, now, here, here's the cool thing about it. Jesus oftentimes throughout his ministry on earth deferred and said, I don't do anything except that which the Father is instructing me to do. In, in other words, Jesus has always had authority, but he limits himself in his earthly ministry, even though he's fully God, to, being, to having to operate the same way that you and I operate, which is to be connected to God through, his, through this deep and abiding prayer life. And so Jesus would draw apart to hear the voice of the Father in his life. And, and so he would often defer and say, I only do that which I hear the Father saying. But now that he's been resurrected, he's crucified and resurrected, he stands before them, and he doesn't say this at all. What he says to them, he says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So, in case you're wondering what the definition of all is, Jesus makes it clear. He says, all authority just means all the authority that's in heaven and in earth. Everything else is up for grabs. So, if you can find a place that doesn't include heaven or earth, then you can take that ground for yourself and claim authority over it. Everything else is Jesus's, heaven and earth. And so, and you know, th- there's, I'm being a bit facetious, but there, the point is there's not a square inch on this planet over which Jesus does not have authority. This is a, this is a really, I mean, you got to wrestle with this. This is, it, this, it sounds so simple on the surface. Yeah, fine, Jesus is Lord. We say that all the time. It's the primary confession that the church holds in common, you know, and they say in all things, you know, in the essential things we have to have unity. The most essential thing we have to have unity in is the lordship of Jesus. And so we go, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but what does that mean? Well, here's what you have to wrestle with. It means that Jesus actually rules and reigns as authority over every square inch. He has the authority to rule over governments and businesses and farming and science and art and economics and education. It means that that all of life, everything in life will eventually come under his total rule and reign. 
if, it, it, if it's not under his rule and reign now, it's not because he doesn't have authority. It's because he's patient and he's long-suffering. You know, but he won't be satisfied. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he won't be satisfied until all his enemies are placed under his feet, um, which is a reference to the Psalms. And, he, you know, he won't, he, won't, he won't fail nor be discouraged till he's established justice on the earth and the coastlands shall wait for the law. That's from Isaiah 42. And so this is a really important thing to understand in terms of our following of Jesus and being you know, true disciples, that a major portion of every church's ministry should be to call all competing authorities to repentance you know, through the faithful teaching of the word. This is part of what it means to be a faithful witness, a faithful congregation, is that when we see competing authorities, we have to call those competing authorities to repentance. It's just to say, look, you don't have the authority that you think you have. Jesus has established himself as authority over heaven and earth. And also, the reason that's really good news to me is it gives me extraordinary confidence. I have, I have the fear of man. Do any of you have fear of man? I mean, a few of you are honest, shake your head. How many of you have fear of man? I have fear of man. I do. I, I oftentimes struggle with the idea of man. Oh, if I talk about Jesus right here, right now, this person, um, they might know more than I do. So there, there's this sense of inadequacy of like, oh boy, you know, I'm afraid that, you know, what if, what if they, you know, have you ever encountered somebody who's an atheist who knows more of the Bible than you do? They're out there, particularly within regards to new atheism. Um, you know, so I have this, oh, man, what if they, have you ever had a fear of rejection? What if I actually say to my neighbor, you know, um, we've known each other a while, but we don't know me all that well. And, you know, one thing about me, if, you know, you, you asked me the question about why we did this this way, the reason that we, uh, that we made a decision that way is because Jesus is the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our household, and every decision we make comes under his rulership. And so we didn't really feel like we had a choice but to make this decision or act this way, to think this, to do this. And this is why, and you're like, oh, my word, you know, they, they might reject me if they know, you know, who I follow. Um, Jesus actually addresses this by telling us that his authority, there's nowhere you can go where he doesn't have authority. And so... You know, I think of like, you know, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a very, I hope nobody has like an, an actual aunt named Agatha. I was thinking like Aunt Agatha. You know, you're at Aunt Agatha's house and you're, ta- and you, and you're just saying, you know, I just love the Lord. And she says, you know, that's not how we feel in this house. That's not, my ha- that's not the rules of my house. You can say, I res- while I respect you, Aunt Agatha, the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus actually does have authority over your house. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he has authority over all heaven and all earth. And, and so we, there ought to be something within his statement here that gives rise to something like holy boldness in us. doesn't mean, I, I used to think when at the surface level reading of this, that only thing this talked about was evangelism. Jesus never says in this, go make converts. Although it is a part of, the, of, the, of discipleship. But I used to think, you know, if I, had, if, I, if I was to be faithful to this, I just had to talk to everybody, no matter what the situation was, no matter what the context was, and no matter if I had to hold them down and force it down their throat, that, you know, about who Jesus is. And I've learned as I've grown a bit that, you know, you have to be winsome. You actually have to be, you know, you have to have discernment, and you have to have wisdom as you, as you speak. But you can't have all those things as an excuse to not be bold. Jesus has authority everywhere. Have you ever considered that in terms of your witness? Have I lost you on point one? 
Amen? You believe that? That Jesus actually has authority. If you believe that, it causes us to live a bit differently in terms of the way we view the world around us. There's no place you'll go and nothing you'll do where Jesus doesn't actually have real authority over that place, over that situation. Secondly, he says, uh, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. There's the second all. Or he might say, all y'all, or something like that, if he, was, when, when he returns to the south. But here, here's the basic bottom line. Here's the way it ties together. If Jesus has authority in Jacksonville and Jakarta, in Jackson Hole, in Boston and in Bangkok and everywhere, then it stands to reason that he wants disciples in all those places that he has authority. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just a reasonable way. He's like, if I have authority, in the, the, then, I, then I... And so what Jesus is talking about here is both physical nations... This is an extraordinary revelation if you think about it. If you look at the world today, if you go, if you were to Google, you know, map of the world, and it comes up on your, on your smartphone, and you see all the different borders that exist there, and if you were somehow able to have a heavenly Google thing, and you say, you know, map of the Jesus' world, you would see the same landmass, but you would see no borders. There are no borders in, in the kingdom of God. that hit you. Now, that doesn't mean, as I preached last week, that doesn't mean that we all get meshed into this one cosmic ooze and we're all one. No, our, our, our distinctive ethnicity and our, the things that make us beautiful and diverse will remain and will remain for eternity. It's, it's, it's part of the beauty of the kingdom of God. But there are no closed off Nations. There are no places where Jesus doesn't want us to go. And so, you know, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's all the places I want you to go. You know, but there are no borders, but there are frontiers. There are places that still exist in the world, particularly places in the world where people, they're, they're, they're are either, either they've not heard his name, or one of my favorite categories to talk about are what we call in the missions world UPGs or unreached people groups. Do you know what unreached people groups are? Unreached people groups are defined as ethnic groups or nations of people in which the witness of Jesus is so insignificant, so small, that it cannot sustain itself without an outside entity, um, you know, propping it up. So there's not enough. And so there actually are reached nations... Being a reached nation is not a definitive thing that you can remain that forever. There are reached nations that are becoming unreached because of, you know, for example, Liberia, the poorest nation in the world, is about 95% Christian. But Islam is growing there so rapidly that it's not, without the tide being stemmed, Liberia could become an unreached nation. America could become an unreached nation. It's possible. And so... Um, unreached, unreached people groups are nations or ethnic groups of people that are so insignificant in terms of the gospel witness they can't sustain themselves. Do you want a couple of really interesting tidbits about this? Because Jesus says, I want you to go to all nations, make disciples of all nations, particularly I'm concerned with the ends of the earth. These people have never heard my name. Let me give you a couple of interesting statistics that I hope will bug you a little bit. 
you'll probably, you tend to remember startling statistics, so this will probably be the thing you remember. You ready? We spend more on pet food in America than we do on global missions annually. I have no problem with pets. Right now, there's a dog party going on in my house. So there's a, there, were, there were four dogs. Carol and I dog sat for two dogs, and our two dogs were there. It was a mess. Um, I, I told her, I was like, this is your destiny. If something were to happen to me, you're going to have like 40 dogs sitting around you, and they're going to come take you away. But I have no problem with that. But do you know we spend more annually on pet food than we do on global missions? Does that bother? Does that, is that, does anybody, does that hit you like that hits me? Like, we spend more on pet food than we do on global missions? All right, that one doesn't get you. Let me boil it down. Okay, that's global missions. That's the, all of it. Now, most of global missions is happening. 97% of global missions is actually being done to reach people groups. It's a problem within the missions world. Only about 3% of our missional activity is to unreach people groups. It's a problem. We're working on that in the missions world, but let me give you a statistic that will blow you away even further. We spend more on Halloween costumes for pets than we do on reaching unreached people groups per year. We spend more on Halloween costumes for pets in America than we do on reaching unreached people groups. Does that feel like that helps to fulfill Matthew 28? Making disciples of all nations? Something's got to change there, right? Well, Jesus isn't just talking about physical nations, though. He says uh, the Greek that's there is, is pass all ethnos, which is people. And what he's really getting at here is not just nations and lines and maps, but at the people themselves that are there. And I love the way that, that Jesus is gets, or, or the way that Paul gets at it in Ephesians 2, because this is what Jesus is talking about. He's... This is how Paul says it. He says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Just listen, because I don't have this on the screen. Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one, us both. He's he's talking about, you know, two entities. And you go, wow, there's more than two nations in the world. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So Jesus, I mean, Paul is telling us that Jesus, through his finished work on the cross, tore down the wall that existed between two people groups that that together comprised the entire world. Do you know what those two groups are? Jew and Gentile. What does Gentile mean? It means everyone who's not Jewish, exactly. And so, you know... When you, see, when you see the word Gentile, it might be something you're like, what, what, what's meant here? What's meant is the ethnos, the people of the world who aren't Jewish. And so in Ephesians 2, this beautiful passage, the one new man passage, Paul is saying that the wall has been torn down because God's heart, God, who did Jesus come for? Well, it's hard to answer because everyone, he, God so loved the world, he sent his son. But who did Jesus come for and minister to? Just the Jews, just the lost sheep of Israel. He didn't, come, he didn't come in his ministry directly. He didn't say, well, you know, good on you, Jewish disciples. I'm now going to go over here to Greece, and then I'm going to move out to the known world. He just, he just said, look, my mission is to reach the lost sheep of Israel, whom through their priestly role in the world will then take the gospel forth to the, to the ethnos. Now, it was even, it was, even though that was the, the mission... And even though he says this, therefore go make disciples of all nations, did they get it after Pentecost? They didn't really get it, right? There was a series of visions and, de- and debates and ministry 
meetings that had to happen to be able to say, oh, actually, it's okay for us to go out into the nations. But, but Paul says it beautifully here, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. A beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture that harkens back to this, and the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, was to make disciples of all people, both Jew and Gentile. Now, the problem is, is that we got to the point about 300 years later where we forgot that it included the Jew. And we departed from a Jewish, a Jew-first mindset, and we became uh, a, a Goyim or Gentile-focused church that said, instead of having a debate to say, hey, do these other nations have to be Jewish to follow Jesus? We then flipped the script the other way and said, hey, these guys who are Jewish can't be Jewish and, and follow Jesus. And so we... For, for the first bit of time, it was a problem for the Jew to figure it out. And then for 17 plus hundred years in church history, it's been a problem for, the, for the, the Gentiles to figure out what it means to minister to all people. All right, enough there. Third, so that's all authority in all nations. Can you see the third one in there? All commands, you see it? So it says, therefore go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you had any question whether Jesus is claiming total authority, how many people were baptized in the name of Jesus during his ministry? During Jesus' ministry on earth, how many people were baptized in the name of Jesus? Zero. Jesus never baptized anybody into his name. But now that he's resurrected and he's giving them a mission, he tells them to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy He says, no, baptize them in my name. I'm God. That's, this is, you know, this is, so there's a shift that's here. And so Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey some of the things that I said to you, the, the, the simpler things. Have them obey those things. But not the harder things, because the harder things might upset households. Or, you know, teach them the easy to comprehend things. Because, or only teach them things that, are, that are, they're going to think are relevant in 2019. Because they're going to debate, you know, well, that might have been relevant in, when Jesus walked the earth. But, you know, wine and stomach ailments? I mean, do we really care about that? I mean, how do we figure these things out anymore? And so, you know, no. Jesus is saying teach these new disciples to obey all the commands. And so it's all obedience, all, total. It says Jesus is giving voice and witness to a totalitarian kingdom where, where he, he wants, I mean, man, this seems controlling, doesn't it? No? Doesn't, does it seem controlling to anybody? It seems controlling to me. when I, I, Do you not read the scriptures with an honest lens? It seems very controlling to me that Jesus wants to control. He wants me to obey everything he's commanded. It seems controlling, but it's actually beautiful. He's a good father. And, and he, you know, but it's really hard. Is it, is it hard for you? Do you find it hard to obey everything Jesus taught? How many of you, I'd like you to, well, just slip a finger in the air if you find it easy to obey everything he taught. God, I want to embarrass you at first. Anybody? 
and then, and then put it up boldly and then come up here and I want you to give, give testimony if you find it easy. to. So it's really hard. What I'm saying is I find my own total obedience to all that Jesus commanded to be very difficult. I find that to be very challenging. I find it to be, be, to be impossible to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. I'm growing in grace. I'm growing more and more, I hope, I'm growing more and more into his likeness so that I think more like him, I believe more like him, I act more like him every day, but I'm not there yet. I am not entirely sanctified. If it can happen before I die, I want it, I'm aiming at it, but I don't know that it's going to happen before I die. I find it very difficult, if not impossible, to be totally obedient to all that Jesus commanded. It's difficult. This is a great, great challenge. It's really hard. Now, what makes it even more challenging is Jesus says, teach these new disciples to obey everything I've commanded. Why is that so difficult? Because they don't do what you say. They do what you do. You can't give away what you don't have. So if you're saying, you're going, hey, Becca, I know that I have a hard time sometimes relating to my wife in the way that I'm supposed to, according to the way that Jesus commands me to. I don't always love her and honor her the way that I should, but you should love and honor Brian exactly the way Jesus tells you to. Now, that's not wrong, is it? It's not wrong for me to say that. Even if I'm not doing it, it's not wrong for me to say that because it, even if I'm not, I should still, but you, you're going to say, well, if you don't get it right, And so it's very, this is a very, very demanding, demanding bar. All obedience. Jesus says in Matthew 5, this is where really the rubber meets the road. Teach them to obey everything I commanded. All right, you got that in your mind? Hold that as a placeholder. Okay, so that's the the title over this. Now, Now, hear this scripture in Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount. Even people who aren't really all that into Jesus go, well, if I just follow the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is beautiful. Here's what he says. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Remember where he has authority? Two places. Heaven and earth. He says, until those two places disappear... Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others, either by your example or by your words, to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what that means. You'd be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I hope it means you still get in. You know, but you're just the least. I think that's what it means, but I don't know what it is. I have not studied that out. Marianne, maybe you study that out. I mean, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, there are nuances in the, in the way that Jesus is used this, but they're basically synonymous. So I, I don't know exactly what it means to be least. He goes on to say, but anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you had to choose between least or great in the kingdom of heaven, which would you choose? All right, just making sure you're the right people. So here, here's, here's why that's important. If we talk about our church growing, Maranatha Church of Jacksonville being a healthy, growing church, that's not a conversation that I really care about having 
unless it's rooted in discipleship. Unless it's rooted in, here's the truth. Statistically speaking, the church in North America is declining rapidly. Statistically, numerically. Fewer and fewer people as a percentage of our population are going. And as you, if you were here a month or so ago when Pastor Rich Stevenson preached and preached on the great and terrible, he talked about the great falling away. It doesn't seem to be completely inconsistent with the end of the age, but there's a revival to be expected in, these, in, the, in the great side of that, and that's that those who will remain will become more and more like Jesus, that we can go, the part of what, when we define growth for our church it should include new converts, people, new adult believers. I'm sure we want, to, we want our youth to, to know the Lord and not stray. We want our children to get biblical instruction, never stray. But we also want people who live within the sound of my voice who don't know him to come to know him as Lord and Savior, right? They've never known him before. But we also need for each and every one of us to not stop growing in the Lord. And so discipleship has to be the basic foundation of what it means for us to grow as a church. For us to grow apart from that, we could grow numerically to a thousand people, and if we don't grow in discipleship, we actually haven't grown. We've created something that's 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 unhealthy. So, all of us, or all y'all, you know, all, who personally confess that we believe in Jesus and we believe in the work, the atoning work He's done on our behalf. We have to work at carefully following and guarding and living out all Jesus' commands to his followers. The Greek word that's in that text, obey, literally means to maintain a state of vigilance. It means to remain on guard when it comes to living out and applying what Jesus instructs us to do. And of course, like we said earlier, like I was implying earlier, no one can keep everything Jesus said, but that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, are you trying? You're giving it your all to, to observe everything, that, to obey everything, to be vigilant about Jesus' teachings and to employ them in your life. Is it your passionate desire to like diligently seek and to understand the scriptures and then to actively bend your will to God's will like I talked about last week? Is it your deep desire to go, Lord, if there's any part of my life that isn't in accordance with your will, I, I, I want, I'm not only willing, I'm asking you to help me change to follow you like you would have me follow you. It's critical. If you ever want to be a disciple maker, then you have to realize that people need to see us in action. Demonstrating in the little details of our lives what it means to follow Jesus. You know, I remember a day, my wife on many occasions has discipled me. She's been a disciple maker in my life in many, many ways. And I remember remember one time, a long time ago, I'm talking 20 maybe 25 years ago. Do you remember when we used to have these things called home phones? And they would ring and they were on the wall and you didn't go anywhere. And so the kids were all gathered around and somebody would call and you'd go, and you didn't even have caller ID. And you'd go, bring, 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 hello? Oh, hey, Bob. And what would we say? Tell him I'm not here. Oh, hey, Bob, yeah, yeah, Jeff's not here right now. Uh, yeah, he's out here. Yeah, oh, sure, I'll let him know you call. I'll gladly have him give you a call back. Yeah, bye. And, and um, I think I'd said that one evening to Carol, and the kids were there, and she said, you know, I can't do that for you. 
It's not just because it's wrong. It's because I can't have our kids watch that lie. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it was that. She just doesn't tend to be that in my face. But it was, you know, it was something like that. And it demonstrates to me that how Jesus wants to be in the details as much as the devil's in the details. And that we need to be willing to demonstrate to people who are watching, young disciples or people who aren't even part of the kingdom, what it means to follow Jesus, especially, hear me on this, especially in ways that bring us into conflict with the world. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus has a really serious conversation with the Pharisees in regards to their observance of the Torah. After they challenge Jesus on, on what they consider to be his, his, his lack of uh, proper ritual washing before a meal. And as Jesus uh, states as part of a challenge back to them, that he says, you're doing really well in the minuscule details of religious life, but you've completely blown it when it comes to the bigger picture of walking with passionate desire what it means to follow God's actual instructions. Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees for you pay a tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and you, yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done. He's saying you should have paid a tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb without neglecting the other thing, which is paying regard to justice and the love of God. And, and the point is Jesus said that to them, but we have the same problem. We show up as Pharisees. We have the look of uh, our religious affiliation or our association down cold. We know what it is to keep people out because they don't believe what we believe. To say, you know, you're not kind of where we are, so you know, we, have the, we have the look of people who are saying we're good at being the boundary guards. We have that look down. We have the right doctrines in place. But people watch beyond that, and way too often within our own spiritual family, we hold, these really, we hold deep envy toward others for their, for, their, for their abilities and their accomplishments. We have bitterness about our past hurts and offenses, and we have pride that blinds us you know, to, the, to the real purposes that Jesus has brought us into family, which is what we sang about earlier, to glorify the Lord and to grow his family. And so the ones who are supposed to be following our lead or at least are curious to go, do I want to do this, they see these things like petty pride and, then, and, and our closely held hurt feelings, and they go, you know, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I'm good. So we have to vigilantly keep watch, as Jesus says, to apply both the large and the small details of all that Jesus teaches, remembering that the first two commandments that frame all of Scripture are to love God above everything else and to, hold, and to love those around us like ourselves. All right, enough there. Fourth and finally. Do you see the fourth one? Go, go to the next. Yeah. Uh, if, you can, if you can flip over to just the next, it doesn't have the end of it on there. Just the verse 20. No, you, you're missing a bit. If you just go to the next. I want it to be on the screen so you can. Yeah, just, just do verse 20 alone because it it's not complete up there on the screen. If you're listening online and you didn't have a chance to be here, I'm presently arguing with, the sound, with, with Andy and the sound. <laughs> there it is. So... So there's verse 20 as a standalone. Do you see the final all? What's the final all? 
okay, so now you think I'm playing a trick on you, right? That, haha, you, you know, you took the adverb always and you made it an all. But actually, this is just a problem with the English. The Greek doesn't have it as an adverb always. It has, it has something different there. It, the, the Greek has, uh, uh, it has the same word for all, pas, P-A-S, and it, and it, it then particularizes it in, in something that has to do with the, the, the completion or, the, converge, or the, the surrounding of all time and place. And so the NLT says it this way, and be sure of this, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Or you might have a translation that says remember. Some of your translations, if you have a physical Bible with you, look, does it say remember? You know, remember is, either way, if it's remember or and be sure of this, it's taken from a Greek word that means behold. It doesn't mean a mind thing. It means look. It's Jesus asking his disciples to look at him, to look upon him, and to lean into him and stay focused on him. It's Hebrews 12 where it says, you know, don't be so easily distracted or entangled in sin, but keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, behold, look at me. Look at me. This is like a good coach or a good father or a good mother saying, look at me, look at my eyes. I am not going anywhere. Even though I'm ascending into heaven, I will be with you. Keep focused on me. The further you go out to the distant places of the earth, the more you need to cling to me. He calls us closer to him. It, you know, so when he says go far away, it doesn't mean go far away from him. I always tell people, you know, there's no, there's no awards distributed for miles traveled in the kingdom of God. You don't get a greater reward because you go further to the unreached people groups. It's not a greater reward. It's, a, it's just a simple obedience. But we oftentimes think that the further away we go, the harder it is, the further I get from... No, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't stay at your church when you go home to your neighbor or when you go to Africa or wherever it may be. He says, wherever you go, whatever you do, I'm with you. He's with us every single day, and he will be until the end of time. It doesn't matter where you are. Now, let me give you something that's going to really astound you. This is a part of the always that you didn't ever think about, I promise you. Let me read it to you. It's not going to be up on the screen. Just close your eyes and listen to this. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You ready? This is going to correct some bad theology. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you know what that passage says? It says, God is with you always. God is even with you in temptation. God hasn't left you in your temptation. He is with you when you're tempted, when you're in that place. I'll teach on this another time, but um, let me just say it this way. This is the simple way to go. I'm, I'm going the easy way right here. Guys... You know what I'm talking about. When you, when, when you have like a, a thought, let's just say it's a lustful thought. When, ladies, you can clog your ears if you don't want to hear this, but guys think things that they shouldn't think all the time. And when you have something enters into your mind and it's a temptation, you have about five seconds to either take that thought captive and get rid of it and replace it with a more beautiful thought or that thought begins to dominate. And Jesus is right there in the midst of that temptation to say, just think about me. Just behold me. Just remember I'm here. Just look at me. And in that five seconds, if you'll just look back to him, I promise you that will conquer 
whatever that is that you're struggling with in that moment. He promises to be with us even in our temptation. That is a good father. That is a good promise. He's a good shepherd. He's not a hireling. This is what he says. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd puts the sheep before himself, sacrifices himself if necessary. A hired man doesn't do that because he's not a shepherd. The sheep mean nothing to him. He sees a wolf come and he runs for it, leaving the sheep to be ravaged and scattered by the wolf. He's only in it for the money. The sheep don't matter to him. I'm not a hireling. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and my own sheep know me in the same way the father knows me and I know the father. I put the sheep before myself, sacrificing myself if necessary. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I'm not a hireling. I'm a good shepherd. I'm a good father, even in your temptation. Brian, come on up. I think that... uh, One of the reasons that I love these four alls, and particularly the last one, the last one, I I can't tell you how many times I've read that passage, and and each and every time I read it, when I get to that, you know, and and I'm with you even to the end of the age, I'm with you always, it takes my breath away every time. Every single time it takes my breath away. And it's one of the reasons that I love our name Maranatha is because when I read this, I read Maranatha. I, I, re- I reject the notion that there is more power in Christ's physical presence than in his spiritual presence within the church. I reject the notion that, that somehow there's greater power if you were to walk through the back doors than there is now. I reject that notion. Even though I look with really eager anticipation to the physical second coming of Jesus, because it's not until then that certain things are going to be fulfilled that I want to see fulfilled. Like there's brokenness that I want to see, and there's broken things I want to see restored. And that's not going to happen until he comes back. But there's not more power when he comes back than what we have available to us now. And I re- so I rejoice that he came. I guess the sign was over here. I rejoice that he came, and I rejoice that he's coming. But I live in between those in a way that makes me rejoice in the powerful presence within the church right now throughout this age. Jesus promised, and I've stood on the spot where he promised this, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. There's power in the name of Jesus. Maranatha. (laughs) And so stand with me. I want to pray. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kneel. You can come forward if you'd like. Um, when we say amen, go in peace, there'll, there'll be an opportunity. If you want prayer specifically for yourself, then you can. I want to remind you, when I say go in peace, I want as many of you as can, you can to come and pray for the Buttersteins. I'm going to say go in peace so those of you who have a, a lunch date.